Throughout the Gospels, Peter stands out among the disciples. He's quick to act and quick to speak. He is bold and brash, brave and fearful, lovable and maddening. At pivotal moments in the story, Peter is often there with something to say. And sometimes he gets it just right. Other times, well, not so much. You can make a sort of gospel scorecard for him. Over here in the Way to Go Peter column, you will certainly find his declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. No one else had put that name and that weighty title together just yet. Maybe others among the disciples were thinking it or wondering about it, but it's Peter who finally took a deep breath and said it. Also in that column, stepping out onto the Sea of Galilee to walk to Jesus on the water. While the others were content to watch Jesus do it from the safety of the boat, it's Peter who put one foot in front of the other on the waves. After Easter, when the disciples were out fishing in the early morning and the risen Christ called to them from the lakeshore, the Gospel of John tells us it was, of course, Peter who jumped into the water and swam to Jesus because rowing wouldn't get him there fast enough. You could add more to the list, but you get the idea. Peter often got things profoundly right, taking faithful risks, responding in great devotion and love toward Jesus. There is, of course, the other list, too. The times Peter royally messed things up. In that column, you'll find his rebuking Jesus for talking too much about his death, which earned Peter a strong rebuke from Jesus in return. You'll find his bold declaration that he would follow Jesus no matter what, a declaration he would break only a couple hours later. You'll find him, of course, denying that he knew Jesus at all, not once, not twice, but three times. The Transfiguration, that familiar story we just heard read, is certainly one of the pivotal moments in the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And here, too, Peter speaks up. When the disciples look up from their sleepy prayer on the mountain and see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah shining, it's Peter who opens his mouth to speak. Master, he says to Jesus, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So where do you put this story on Peter's scorecard? Which column does this one go in? Is this a moment when Peter got it just right, or a moment when he got it dead wrong? I can tell you where I have always put this story, squarely in the list of Peter's blunders. I have always heard this as a moment where Peter spoke too quickly, where he took a holy moment and goofed it up, where he wasn't really sure what to say, so he said something about making dwellings, maybe trying to freeze this particular sacred moment in time, which, of course, you can never really do. Mountaintop experiences are nice, Peter, but you can't live there. Sooner or later, you've got to go back down into the valley. That's where real life is lived, after all. That's where ministry takes place. That's how virtually every commentary I've read on this passage talks about this story. That's certainly how I have preached it many times. 
But something this past week made me question that familiar way of looking at the scene. An essay I read on this passage notes that this is the only time in scripture where the disciples address Jesus and he doesn't respond. That's kind of remarkable, don't you think? Now, I will say I didn't have time to read all four of the Gospels and verify that claim this week. So if you can think of another spot in Scripture where the disciples talk to Jesus and he doesn't respond, please let me know. But I sure can't think of one. Being the teacher that he is, he's always quick to respond to their questions, and he most certainly tells them when they get something very wrong. When the disciples want to call down fire from heaven on a village that won't welcome them, Jesus is very clear. No, you can't do that. When Peter tells him to stop talking about his death, Jesus responds as forcefully as can be. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Jesus always responds. But here when Peter pipes up about making dwellings in this place where it is so good to be, he doesn't say, Peter, you knucklehead, you missed the point again. No, he says nothing. I think that's kind of amazing. And it makes me wonder if maybe Peter didn't get it quite so wrong after all. We are all quick to say that the mountaintop isn't a place to live. And of course that's right. We all know that the life of following Jesus isn't one spiritual high point after another. It just doesn't work like that. And besides, there is a world of need waiting down in the valley. There are illnesses to cure and grieving people to care for and a creation to nurture, and injustices to be confronted. There is work to be done, and Jesus' followers then and now need to be about it. We're quick to say that, and that's right. You can't live on the mountaintop. But maybe that's not what Peter was proposing at all. Maybe he just wanted to linger there for a while. That word dwellings can also be translated tents, which sounds a whole lot less permanent to me. Peter recognized something astounding, mysterious, and wholly beyond his comprehension right there in front of him. He wanted to mark that experience somehow, to sit with it, to wonder about it, to savor it. And maybe in that way, he was profoundly right. Maybe lingering a while with Jesus on this particular mountaintop is actually just what we need. Because it is some vision the disciples see there. Try to imagine climbing with this person you have come to know well. This person you've laughed with and struggled with and traveled with and shared countless meals with. It's a steep climb and you are tired by the end, your breath short, your eyes heavy with sleep. You are ready to take a break, but Jesus is ready to pray, so you try. It's hard after all that work, though, and your eyes begin to droop. It goes on like this for some time until something makes your eyes pop open wide. The light is too bright suddenly for this time of day. The sun is setting, but there is suddenly light all around. And it's coming from Jesus. This person you know so well suddenly looks different. His face seems to be lit not by the setting sun, but from somewhere deep within him. He's shining. And he's speaking with Moses and Elijah, these prophets who have been dead for centuries. Somehow you just know that it's them. It is a lot to take in. What do you say 
in the presence of something so strange, so mysterious, so inexplicable. The poetry we heard this morning from the letter to the Colossians helps us wonder at the scene. This is no ordinary teacher and friend. This is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all things on heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. This is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one in whom all things hold together. Peter didn't have all that complex theological language in that moment, of course, but he knew a holy moment when he saw it. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for wanting to stay there a while. Now, there probably are some people out there who need to be told that it's time to come down off the mountaintop and get to work already. But my hunch is that that might not be the problem for most of us. My hunch is that probably many of us could use a little more time basking in the light of God. I know I certainly could. In the Transfiguration story, we are given a glimpse of Jesus shining with that light shining with the light that first dawned at creation, with the light that will embrace everything in wholeness and peace in the fullness of time. It is good to be there with the disciples on the mountaintop. It is good to pause, to wonder, to take it all in. Of course we can't live there, but we can pause and stay a while. This story invites us to linger with the light of God's love shining in the face of Jesus to feel it on our faces too, to let it warm our hard hearts and soften our brittle spirits, to let it wash over us in hope and awaken us again to God's light shining in so many places. Because make no mistake, it is there, all around. Frederick Buechner says it this way, even with us, something like that happens once in a while. The face of a man walking his child in the park of a woman picking peas in the garden, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert, say, or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a beer at a Saturday baseball game in July. Every once and so often, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive transfigures the human face that it is almost beyond bearing. It is Holy Trinity Sunday today, and that is a perfect time to wonder at the goodness of this God who welcomes us into the divine life, who makes space for us within the divine dance, who in Jesus says again and again, I am for you. He will lead us back down into the valley where there's work to be done, and he will be with us there too. There is no doubt about that. But don't forget to linger on the mountaintop as well, to worship, to pray, to rest, to bask in the glow of this one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because friends, Peter was right. It is good to be here. Thanks be to God. Amen.